G'day, it's Parky here. Welcome to the Cancel Sail Watch podcast, where we discuss the convergence of the spirit of flight with the spirit of Anzac in a World War One Aussie aviator called Frank McNamara. Plus, Sam, Luke, and I talk about our own Anzac Day experiences. Thanks for joining us. What's a Cancel Sail Watch podcast all about? Well, it's where three pilots from three different generations, 22 years apart, gather every two weeks to pursue the spirit of flight. Sam's our baby boomer pilot who first flew in the early 70s and safely logged five decades worth of military, police, rescue and instructional time. Parky, that's me, is our Gen X pilot and I began flying in the early 90s. I've got a passion for safety management along with 20 years of military, rescue and instructional time. And of course, there's our new Gen Y pilot in training, Luke, who just kicked off his flying career by signing up for pilot training at a local flight school. Three different generations of pilots with three very different generational perspectives talk through the joys and challenges of flight as Luke progresses through pilot training and beyond. From the first spark of aviation curiosity to going solo and onwards to a professional career, Sam, Parkey and Luke passionately pursue the spirit of flight within the now highly technical experience of modern day aviation. As you listen, you'll get a couch side, behind the scenes perspective into the training, the knowledge and the attitude it takes for a pilot to finish a flight and radio into air traffic control, cancel Sailwatch. Hope you enjoy our conversation and if you reckon it's worth it, please rate and comment. Also, why not visit the cancelsailwatch.com website for additional content such as pictures, memorabilia, safety articles to help you cancel Sailwatch. Today, we've combined our Cancel Sail Watch retro salute to Frank McNamara with our own discussion. And now, on with today's conversation. So today, we're looking at the spirit of Anzac and we're having a look at how that sort of compares with the spirit of flight. So what I thought I'd do is I'd start off with this account by uh, Robert Macklin, who's recently written a book called Bravest. Well, in fact, I think it's like five or six years old now, but it's a summary account of 15 of the Australian VC winners, Victoria Cross winners. And I thought it'd be interesting just to start off with an account of Frank McNamara, who was an Army Flying Corps, Australian Army Flying Corps uh, pilot who won the VC. And I think he's the only one who has won the VC, the only pilot as an army flying guy or even air force guy that's won the the vc so the warrant on the vc states this neither rank nor long service nor, nor wounds nor any other circumstance save the merit of bravery shall establish a sufficient claim for the honor out of 1353 recipients since the medal's inception 150 years ago 96 have been australian servicemen and one of those has been Frank McNamara. So I'll just share the account with you guys from Bravest. Starts off with Francis Hubert McNamara, who was born in 1894 in the small northern Victorian town of Rushworth near Bendigo. So he's at Teachers College, war breaks out in Europe. He joins the local militia, the Brighton Rifles, and becomes a lieutenant on the 1st of July, 1915. So just over a hundred years ago. He immediately applied to attend a course in what was back in those days called military aeronautics, it was a called pilot's course and was accepted at the Point Cook Central Flying School the following month. I think you're pretty familiar with that, Sam. We were talking about that a couple of weeks ago. He was instantly captivated. He made his first solo flight in a primitive Bristol box kite aircraft on the 18th of September and had his first 
forced landing three weeks later. A few weeks after that, he graduated. He graduated to the more sophisticated BE-2A aircraft in January 1916. So basically over four to six weeks, he goes from zero to hero. He goes from being nothing to being an, an aviator. And then a few months later, uh, he's sent out to war. So, Luke, I don't know how long you're. How long are you planning to take for your pilot's course? To private pilot's license is probably going to be a year. So, <laughs> so how would you feel if we said, right, Luke, in uh, a month you're going to have your pilot's license, and a month later we're going to send you off to war? That's pretty, uh, pretty scary thought, hey. Yeah, and I think when those guys, a lot of them, when they got to the front or got into a battle situation or combat situation, they had something between ten to fifteen hours of flying time. Mm. So it's an interesting statistic safety-wise that most casualties and most aircraft losses are accounted not by combat, as in not by being shot down, but actually by some sort of safety breach, some sort of mistake or whatever. And that's the same throughout all the wars. So you can imagine if you've got 10 to 15 hours of flight time and you could potentially going up against, say, the Richthofen cir Circus or something, mm -hmm. you would be packing your DAX, I reckon, and yeah. it would be very easy to make a mistake. So. Yeah. Pretty amazing that a school teacher from Bendigo uh, was to win the VC. So I'll just continue. Uh, after he got his pilot certificate, he graduated to the BE-2A aircraft. However, he was still raw and inexperienced when his number one squadron embarked for the Middle East. On the 20th of March, McNamara was in a group of flyers piloting one of two Martin sides, the other flown by Lieutenant Alfred Ellis with two BE-2Cs flown by Peter Drummond and Captain D.W. Rutherford. The Martin sides carried howitzer shells in the place of bombs, which were in short supply. The shells were timed to explode 40 seconds after release. However, when McNamara released his load over Rumla, one shell caught in the release mechanism and exploded only nine meters below the aircraft. Shrapnel burst upward and hit McNamara in the legs and buttocks. I felt as if I'd been hit with a sledgehammer, he said later on. So these howitzers are essentially mm. artillery shells designed to be fired from an artillery weapon and they can do a lot of damage. A lot of them are, are designed to burst over the ground as well and um, spray the ground with fragments. And in this particular case, it sprayed the fragments up into the aircraft mm. and seriously injured him. He turned immediately for base, but he was bleeding profusely and fighting to stay in control. But as he turned, he saw one of his squadron's aircraft had come down near a railway line. The pilot had detonated a smoke bomb as a distress signal and McNamara could see Turkish cavalry had spotted the down plane and were heading in his direction. He didn't hesitate. He put his aircraft into a steep dive through enemy ground fire and made for the level area near the railway. Now, just compare that for a minute, right? A few months before, maybe no more than a year, he's a school teacher. Mm. He's, a, he's not even graduated as a school teacher. Now, he's in the thick of it, you know. He's been shot out, he's been wounded, he's trying to save a mate. It's an amazing contrast. He could see that the down pilot was Captain Rutherford, a Queenslander who had previously served with the light horse at Gallipoli. He had transferred to the Royal Flying Corps only after the Gallipoli withdrawal in December 1915 and undertaken his first mission as a pilot only in March 1917. In fact, this was only his second sortie against hostile forces. Standing orders were for downed pilots to burn their aircraft to prevent them falling into enemy hands, but Rutherford had not set the fire when McNamara landed, and when he saw that his rescuer was not getting out of his plane, he ran towards a single-seated Martin side. At first, he asked if McNamara could help him restart the BE-2C. Police had a second seat for a passenger. No time, McNamara replied. The Turkish cavalry was coming on 
at a furious pace and McNamara wasn't sure whether he could climb out of the aircraft with his wounds anyway. So mm. Rutherford climbed in onto the lower wing of the biplane and sprawled across the cowling of the engine to grab a strut on the other side. So, you know, last couple of weeks ago, yeah. we were talking about Biggles and that was the kind of thing you expected from Biggles. In fact, this whole <laughs> thing reads like a yeah. like some sort of Hollywood movie. Have you heard this account before, Luke? Uh, I haven't, but I did have a bit of a read of it earlier. One of the things that kind of stood out to me was the only time I've ever thought about putting an aeroplane down in like a paddock somewhere is on like an engine failure just after takeoff. And mm. this guy is like willingly putting his aircraft down in a paddock somewhere in the middle of all this ground fire. I was just like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. And you know, you think about the type of aircraft as well, they're essentially just wood and yeah. canvas yeah. with an engine yeah. and some very rudimentary instruments. And you wouldn't have known whether the explosion has damaged what damage it had to the aircraft. No, yeah, the no that's right. Stuff. Yeah. That's right. Maybe a little bit of ignorance is bliss. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you think about any time we've even been hurt in a mild way, you tend to sort of, all the focus becomes inwards about yeah. you trying to get yourself better or well or yeah. get to safety. It's amazing because he's turned to head for safety and he is seriously uh, injured. He's bleeding a lot, sees his mate in trouble and does a quick turn and heads mm. back. It's mm. It's incredible, really. However, with Rutherford's weight unbalancing the frail craft and McNamara unable to work one leg properly, the plane veered and began heading for a gully at about 50 kilometers per hour. McNamara struggled with the controls and throttled back, but too late, the Martin side skidded into the gully, whose rocks ripped into the lower left wing and tore away the undercarriage. The one mercy was that neither man was injured in the crash. Moreover, their wild ride had taken them closer to Rutherford's BE-2C. It had lost a tyre in the forced landing, but otherwise appeared airworthy, and it boasted an automatic Lewis gun for self-defence. By now, the Turks were within, were within rifle range, and bullets began to splatter around the two Australians as Rutherford helped McNamara out of the Martin side. No sooner were they out than a bullet struck the remaining bomb beneath the fuselage and the plane exploded. They staggered on towards the BE-2C. Then, above them, Drummond and Alice, who had seen something of the action on the ground, began to dive towards the Turkish horsemen firing as they went. This slowed the cavalry just enough for Frank and his mate to reach the plane. Rutherford helped McNamara into the cockpit where he tried to use the Lewis gun against the cavalry. Finding his field of fire too restricted, he drew his revolver and as Rutherford took position by the heavy four-bladed propeller, he fired half a dozen rounds at the marauders. Then on signal, the Queensland gave a mighty heave on the prop. Remarkably, it fired immediately and the pilot coaxed the engine into a throaty roar. Rutherford scrambled onto the lower wing, then struggled into the forward observer seat as McNamara set off with one broken wheel towards the strip of bare earth he had chosen for takeoff. By now, the Turks were ignoring the incoming aircraft and galloping for their quarry in the staggering biplane. Bullets swished around them. Drummond said later the enemy was firing point blank at the machine, but the wounded man at the controls was not to be denied. Frank McNamara held his course, opened the throttle and eased the plane into the air. This was just the beginning of his ordeal. There was almost 120 kilometers still to travel to get to base. And as the natural adrenaline faded from McNamara's system, the waves of pain arrived. He was still losing blood and his legs were stiffening. Time and again, he felt on the verge of fainting and forced himself to put his head out into the ice cold slipstream. The journey seemed endless. Rutherford tried to encourage him, but it was really McNamara's own unquenchable spirit of adventure that kept him going. When he finally put the plane down at home base, he was utterly spent. He passed out 
and the ground crew had to carry him from the aircraft, which still had three unexploded shells attached beneath its wings, a cracked fuselage, and bullet holes everywhere. Hmm. So a little wonder that Frank McNamara was awarded the Victoria Cross, the highest honor for bravery. Mm. And I think it's kind of a cool thing to talk about as we kind of talk about the spirit of flight and we're pursuing the spirit of flight here and to see that convergence here mm. with the spirit of flight and the spirit of Anzac because you see all those, I guess, attributes and characteristics that we often associate with the Anzacs of, of courage, of mateship, of sacrifice. You see them all come together in the aviation world. Mm. And I guess I was just wondering what you guys thought about it. I've obviously heard that before and in the officer's mess at Ogie out there. Also yeah. painting. That painting as well, yeah, mm. great painting. I think even that old film from the 80s, The Light Horseman had, I don't know if it was a B2, but it was definitely a biplane just as a sort of nice cinematic feature, you know, bombing the Turks and that kind of thing, not part of the main sort of thrust of the story, but certainly there. But yeah, what were you guys thinking of that story? I mean, it, it, to me, it almost just, it befuddles me. It's like, how, how could that happen? And how could that guy be so brave to do that? And you like to think, yeah, that'd be me as well, but you know, when you think about kind of your own limitations and so forth. Yeah, what were your thoughts, Sam? Mm. Well, I've obviously seen the painting on the wall at, at Oki, and I was aware of the the outline of the story, but with you reading that, I wasn't aware that he was badly injured prior to committing himself to do that. So that puts the uh, bravery and the courage up a number of notches well, my impression of somebody who has absolute bravery is that they they know that they're going to put their life on the line mm. to do, mm. to achieve, in this case here, a rescue, and they willingly go ahead and do it. It's a calculation. Mm. They calculate. It's not a, a reflex action. Mm. It's, a, it's a deliberate action. Mm. And I think that calculation, it's not like mindless, like you said. It's mm. not just, oh, rush of adrenaline and off I go. They do seem to weigh the pluses and minuses. I remember reading um, the biography of Sir Charles Upham, who was the Kiwi or New Zealander VC winner, an infantryman. He actually won the VC in Bath, so effectively he won it twice. And he was the same. He would do what seemed to be almost foolhardy kind of things, but he had a very quick calculating mind. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting to me, actually, that one of the compatriots of Frank McNamara was a guy called Richard Williams, who would become... The, the father, as they called him, of the RWF, and he was actually an AFL player. And I don't know if this is a, an appropriate kind of comparison to make, but you do see those AFL players and sportsmen that have that real calculating kind of mind under pressure, and they mm. can quickly come up with a plan that's workable and execute it. Mm. And of course, here you see him doing the same kind of thing, but he knows it could come at a cost, and he mm. does it anyway. He does it um, anyway. Yeah. yeah. How about you, Luke? What did you think of that account? Yeah, look, I um, I thought it was pretty cool, which is something I guess you can say in hindsight. I'm sure he probably mm. wasn't feeling too cool as he was mm. uh, he was going through it. I guess yeah, not having been around aviation too long, it's and also having not really been in the military, I guess it's a little bit hard for me to kind of relate. Mm. It was a pretty cool story. Yeah, it's quite amazing to me as well that that's a real story because mm, it sounds yeah. like a computer game, yeah, yeah or it sounds yeah. like a movie, but mm. it's real. Mm. What I, what I often think about even in my own military experience is you, in your head, you tend to build things up and then when you're actually doing them, you find they're just hard work. Like even just getting fit, carrying a pack, being in the mud or outside for long periods of time, not having a nice kind of bed to kind of lay your head on. You've got your hoochie, you've got your 
your bedroll kind of thing and when you're actually out there doing it, you realise that this is pretty tough stuff. And so these guys are kind of out away from their families for long periods of time. They're probably not in real nice conditions. It's in the mm. desert. It's probably stinking hot and probably cold at varying times. And yet here they are serving, looking after each other. Uh, I think that's an awesome thing. Sorry, Sam, did you want to say? Yeah, just uh, his experience was very low. The mere fact that he elected to land in an unknown landing spot mm. and then would have to subsequently take off and then mm. they then jump into an aircraft which is forced landed for a, mm. probably a pretty good reason. Mm. It's, it's just absolutely amazing and, and probably not, not the sort of thing that we would mm. in today's training and, and our qualifications even consider doing in mm. a fixed wing. Mm. Probably wouldn't a helicopter mm. but not a fixed wing into that because we're so used to landing on a, on a, on a runway. Mm that uh, it probably wouldn't even have any mm. mind to do that, mm. whereas take your hat off to him. It's mm. It'd be quite a comprehensive risk management plan that the hierarchy would require for a, a brand new pilot, essentially, on his second operational sortie just to be even landing, doing an outlanding yeah. nowadays. You know, yeah. like, they wouldn't even let them do that. It's And again, that, and that, I mean, that's what this show is kind of all about, is comparing that generational perspective. Mm. Mm. And, you know, for good reason, we have all these processes in place now, but again, it's... When you look at the pioneering days and where they're at there, you just kind of go, wow. So we just wanted to talk today about some of our own Anzac Day experiences. And I've thought a little bit about some Anzac Days that were very special to me. And I'm sure Sam's got some. Luke might not have as many, being the youngest of us all. But what I thought I'd do is we just talk about some of our Anzac Day experiences and then maybe talk to you, Luke, a little bit about your perspective mm. on Anzac Day as our wide Jenner. So I thought I'd just share one of the probably most meaningful Anzac Days was when I was on pilot's course and our three instructors were, were great instructors. They were very keen to see us get through the final stage of pilot's course on what was called the ROBC, the Regimental Officers Basic Course. We were all on UIs, awesome craft and had a lot of history, a sense of history about it. Obviously it's in all the movies, but one of the first turbine powered helicopters in the world. They made thousands and thousands of them, ubiquitous across Vietnam, very well known, and I got to fly it. And so when we, uh, when we got onto UEs, we started learning those as an operational type, and one of our instructors thought it would be a great idea to, and it was, to go up to Shoalwater Bay Training Area, which I've become very familiar with over the years. It almost became our second home, and we would finish off the last part of our pilot's course up there. So myself and my two course buddies all flew up in formation with our instructors, and while we were there, they got onto the local RSL because it was Anzac Day or, or the visit was going to encompass Anzac Day. So what they asked us to do was to do a dawn flyover. So we got up really early and we had strapped on night vision goggles and we took off. And the idea was that we would fly over the Cenotaph at, at Rockhampton for the dawn service and then we would go to the other towns around the place. And I just remember the kind of the somber sense of, I guess, ceremony and respect and honour to be able to do that. We put on our goggles, we started the machines up and we held off a little bit outside of earshot and then we turned and we headed towards the cenotaph. And for someone on the ground, particularly a Vietnam veteran, this is what they told us at the RSL later, it's very rare for a Vietnam veteran to hear that sound and not get very emotional. And as one of the guys said to me later on, one of the Vietnam veterans, he said, you know what, Adrian, that was always the best of sounds and the worst of sounds. It was the best of sounds when it was coming to get us after being in the in the bush or in the jungle patrolling and it was the worst of sounds when it was leaving us behind 
and a lot of them would have tears and stuff when they thought about it. We ended up flying over the cenotaph at maybe a little bit lower than what we were supposed to and then we went around to the other towns and then as I said we went into the RSL and joined with all the old diggers and stuff for some drinks and so forth and stories and all that <laughs> kind of thing and so for a young pilot who was also a young army aviation officer because that's the way the army did it. it wasn't just being sort of the pilot or the push and puller on the controls you're also an army aviation officer that was an awesome Anzac day yeah. and an awesome intro to the Huey. So yeah, that was sort of my Anzac Day story. Did you have any Anzac Day stories that have kind of been meaningful to you, Sam, over the years? The Bougainville fly past, and that, mm. just to, uh, in the context that we were flying with the New Zealanders and mm. Five Squadron. Mm, that's right. So they, that had that Anzac tie-up. Mm. Yeah, that, that was probably well up there with them. I've done a number of fly pasts, mm. but uh, that would have to be Probably the most memorable one. Yeah, I think that was with three squadron, and they were mm. in Bougainville, uh, pretty much. I think it must have been six to twelve months oh, yeah, before we got yeah. there. In, yeah. in it must be nineteen ninety seven and nineteen ninety eight. So we got there in April, and I think it was about mm. only a few days after we arrived off to Brook that there was mm. Anzac Day. Mm. The mere fact that, that we were there with with the New Zealanders flying the same aircraft and having flown, I had the uh, privilege with Mick Pridden and myself were the first ones over there, and they the New Zealanders introduced us to flying in in those sort of conditions. We were thinking, wow, you know, with some of the feats that these guys are flying in very poor conditions. <laughs> he said, oh, don't worry about it. You, you know, within a within a week you'll be doing the same thing, and we were. And then of course, as the troops came online, we would give you check rides around the place and you'd be going wow oh and we'd pass it oh within a week or so you'd be doing the same thing and and you were and we'll probably do a bit of a discussion on Bougainville in the future I think but it really was an awesome experience it was sort of like the lost world over there mm. volcanoes and deep ravines and canyons and sinkholes yeah. and lava tubes and yeah. <laughs> thick jungle I'm sure that if there were any dinosaurs still alive they'd oh. be on Bougainville poke the head up yeah <laughs> um but yeah, I remember that uh, that Anzac Day fly as well, and it was kind of meaningful and special because obviously Anzac Australia and New Zealand were all together, and I believe we were doing a flight over Arawa where the Peace Monitoring Group was there uh, after all the hostilities in Bougainville, and I remember thinking, wow, we really want to kind of impress the New Zealanders. We want to make sure everything's a nice swept-up operation here because mm. I was the troop commander, so I wanted to make sure my blokes were on time, ready to go, you know, no one late, that kind of thing, so that the machines would all take off together. And unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be. Uh, at least it wasn't as smooth as what I would have liked because I'm the troop commander and I jump in the helicopter, which was an Australian Huey that had just been put back together and we were going to do it together with the New Zealanders in their machines. And, of course, they are in the routine, you know. They've, they've been there for a while. They are used to how things work. And anyway, we started up and we were getting ready to launch together when this... New Zealand loadmaster kind of marched out and then stood in front and kind of saluted in a satirical kind of way, I guess you could say. And then he walked in, I didn't realise, but the earthing lead was still on the aircraft, which would not have been good to take off with because it was still plugged in. It meant the aircraft was still connected to the ground, basically. So he kind of had this grin, this smug grin on his face as he pulled the earthing lead out and then marched off again into the kind of twilight. And then we took off and a certain pilot who remained nameless, uh, he was number three, I think, comes up on the uniform or formation frequency and says, this aircraft hasn't been refueled. We've only got 400 pounds of fuel or something. So for some reason, it hadn't been, hadn't been refueled. He only had just enough fuel to quickly do the flyby and then quickly peel off <laughs> and head back with probably a low fuel light on. 
So it wasn't exactly a smooth, well-run operation on our part. But then again, we were still getting used to everything and still a meaningful time. So that was sort of our Anzac Day experience. Luke, for you, you've obviously haven't had military experience, whatever, but you're hearing Sam and I talk about it. What are your thoughts, I guess, as a younger person about Anzac? I've got a couple of thoughts and a couple of memories. So I guess my favourite memory of Anzac is uh, when my parents used to take me to the dawn service here in Toowoomba um, at the monument just uh, across from Queen's Mm, Park. My mother's memorial. Yeah. And I remember warbirds just fly over the top and just the sound sound of Mm. two warbirds is intimidating (laughs) enough. So you just kind of, in that time of reflection, you're just thinking about, oh, what would Mm. have all the the people in the wars actually been thinking when heaps of these guys were coming mm. out them would be pretty pretty intimidating and being i guess you know a gen wire with and not having been in the military it is a little bit hard for me to kind of relate to you know what all of the the vets and everything went through other than through a couple of you know movies like band of brothers and and that kind of thing and i know it doesn't do it any justice like i know movies don't do the actual war any justice but as kind of like a gen y who's never actually experienced that even the kind of tame stuff i've probably seen in the movies is enough to make me go wow these dudes were just <laughs> flipping amazing but i guess from the the spirit of Anzac, um, from what you guys have been saying, from what I've kind of you know heard you guys talk about, and my own experiences in the past, is that real kind of mateship and you know going out of your way uh, when everything else has died to help your mate, exactly like McNamara we were talking mm. about um, earlier, and I guess. My kind of civvy version of that is my ultimate goal as a pilot is to fly for Royal Flying Doctors. Mm. So, and I guess I kind of see that as my civilian version of, you know, helping helping a maid out. Um, yeah. And that's mm. kind of what's really important to me about flying. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you brought that out because I think, and Sam, just correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the spirit of flight should be or ought to be a spirit of service. If, if it was just to become something that we do for ourselves and it is very enjoyable don't get me wrong mm. but if it just becomes that well in, in a way it's a selfish kind of thing mm. but my most enjoyable flying has been on operations like Bougainville where you're out flying serving people bringing people mm. in rescuing locals I've even got a baby named after me after we <laughs> rescued a lady who was in stuck in labor for three days poor thing uh, baby had a big head like me, I think. But uh, anyway, the baby, the baby was born, and man, he had a full head of hair. I can tell you that. And I went up to the hospital, and they said, "Oh, they've named him Adrian after the pilot who saved them." <laughs> so in Bougainville right now, I think there's like an 18-year-old getting around. So hello to Adrian if he's got a podcast. And I kind of think as well that when we're flying and serving people, and as you have Sam as well, in terms of rescue flight, police work. Something, I don't know, there's something even more awesome about that. And I think that is the spirit of Anzac as well Mm. that kind of converges on the spirit of flight, which hopefully is the spirit of the best of humanity, which is Mm. wanting to serve, wanting Mm. to help, not not just up there for a gee whiz kind of flight. So I guess really encourage you to always remember that RFDS dream that you have because the technicalities of flight are going to be something you need to master, but it's Mm. going to become a means by which you can serve. Yeah, the flying itself will become automatic as you get more and more experienced Mm. so you're using whatever whether it's a fixed wing or it's a helicopter you're using it as a tool to do a job and as adrian said the most rewarding work is when you can Mm. help somebody out somebody who's in a situation that needs help 
and you contribute to that as a team. You don't, you're not after recognition, it's just something that's mm. in, inside you. That and I think it's a bit of an, an inspiration as well. It's like, especially in the harder times when you're trying to get through what is a lot of drudgery, mm. you know, mm. a lot of stuff to learn, a lot of flights that you have to get through, a lot of tests. I hate tests, but you know, there's a lot of those that are between you and that dream. So yeah, yeah. I think to remember what the ultimate goal is, is, is really important. Do you have any other Anzac Day memories, Sam? Uh, this is a direct story uh, relates to the people in the Second World War, whereas the one we were talking about before was First World War. Mm. In the Second World War, we were privileged to know a guy by the name of Jeff Warrington, mm. who was a British guy, eventually uh, came out here to Australia with his wife, and he flew Spitfires, and they were in the top cover over the uh, channel. So they would go up and they would have their uh, fuel tanks on and they would be up there for hours. And mm. when something happened, they'd jettison the fuel tank and off they'd go and attack these guys. <laughs> One of the things that surprised me, he told us that each aircraft was assigned a mechanic um, manager, I guess you would call it, and he and the pilot worked together. And these guys were non-commissioned officers. Some of the pilots were officers and others were non-commissioned. They had a, a very good rapport. Jeff was telling us that one thing that was probably typically British, which was <laughs> never ever s spoken about, was when the pilots would come back from a, a dogfight, quite often they'd be, uh, they'd shit themselves. They would get out of the aircraft and the aircraft manager would clean it up and nothing would be said. And the other one was uh, a chap who went to our church up at Thebine, a little tiny little church up there, and uh, his name was Bob Sexton, and he was an NCO pilot who went through the training uh, in Victoria on Tiger Moths. Don't know whether it was Point Cook or somewhere else. There were a number of training areas there. Then I went, went across to Canada. They did their conversion training over there, so he, he became a Lancaster pilot. And then he went to England. They had people from all over the place, Canadians and mm. Australians, British, and they would put them in a hangar, and they'd say, right, select your crew. And they would just go around and talk to people, and they would pick a crew that they were happy with. And he was the first, he was the captain of the first crew, and I'm pretty sure he was a sergeant pilot, who went through their full uh, number of missions, whether it was 20 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. apart from a few changes through leave and people getting crook and that sort of thing. They all survived. Wow, <laughs> that, that was just awesome. unheard of in those yeah, days. Yeah. You see the films where the guys are flying along and the mm. flak coming up. He said mm. it was nothing like that at all. They'd be flying through cloud with minimum amount of training, mm. as, as we heard before, yeah, wow. and they'd be putting these things through a 45-degree angle of bank and swerving around the place. And there'd be aircraft coming across their windscreen and... Others getting hit with flak and just coming straight down and bombs going past them. And, and I think it's interesting too, just tying back into the VC, that the VC was originally going to have the citation for the brave and instead they decided for valour because by saying for the brave, it sort of intimated that everyone else wasn't brave. Mm. When in fact they were, just as you said, for mm. every Frank McNamara, there are hundreds, if not mm. thousands of men uh, and women who put their life on the line every single day yeah. and went out and did that kind of thing. And I think it's interesting as well that in World War II, the flyers were often proportionately in terms of percentages uh, had the highest casualty rates out of any of the mm. other armed services. Mm. Incredible bravery to strap themselves into those machines and take off 
either by day or by night. Mm. You know, that's something I guess that we want to aspire to. We don't want to even, you know, the quite graphic description you gave before, Sam, about what can often happen in flight. You know, that's the reality of being a human being in extreme circumstances. Mm. And, you know, I guess that's why we gather every Anzac day. And I guess that's why today as well, we've sort of recorded this podcast in the spirit of flight, but also in the spirit of Anzac, just to give a bit of a salute, a bit of uh, respect to mm. yeah. all those that have served and are serving and to say thanks. So are there any final words before we finish off? Yes, it's a very salutary lesson and which you just brought up then is just a number of notches up between bravery and valour. And to be outstanding amongst what is already the brave is something truly exceptional and we salute that and we also salute all those that have been amongst the brave that have gone to different situations, different wars and, and served in that way and many of them made the ultimate sacrifice. So well. It's interesting that valour like the bravery awards that we have now have in Australia, mm. I think they're, yeah, they're probably pretty right, but for valour really requires you to be under fire, doesn't mm. it? How you're reacting and... Well, I think you put it well, is that knowing intentionally, because you can easily trip, stumble, fall into doing something mm. brave, but when you know it's going to cost you something and you still... Mm you still cross that line and across you go and put yourself under risk. Yeah. I think that's that's the delineating thing. But then again, I guess everyone that's served under fire has done that to a certain mm. degree, but these have then gone above. Did I ever tell you the story, you know I got that bravery award, Government House, wasn't it? Yeah. At the Lodge, with the, the fact that uh, my award was the only bravery award on that day. They had all these other awards from MBEs and all sort of crap. Uh, mine was the the lowest of the low. Mine was the last one given out. It was a bravery award. Be that as it may, you know, so what? Yeah. But the interesting part was that one of the guys who sat on the committee awarded these things. He came up and he said, oh, puffing his chest out, oh, I was on the committee that did you know, this, that and the other for you. He's a little bit surprised when I turned around and said, you guys haven't got a clue. Mm. I said, you've got no idea what bravery is because mm. they, they, they'd given out uh, other bravery awards at other times to like scouts who'd all fallen in the yeah. water and somebody drags his mate out sort of thing. Yeah. had nothing to do with bravery. I said to him, you guys haven't got a clue what bravery is. Mm. So that set him back on his heels and I said exactly what I said to you before. Yeah. True bravery is somebody who realises they're putting themselves... In, into mortal potential yeah. mortal danger, yeah. it makes a calculated decision yeah, yeah. to do it. Yeah. And not only that, yeah. he might even come around and do it again, yeah. and again, yeah. and again. Yeah. And things, the, the amount of bullets or whatever is of whistles around the place hasn't changed, mm. he's, he's, but he still elects to do it. Yeah. For a rescue in the Blue Mountains, mm. a lady had, had uh, taken a jump off the the lookout, and it was a, probably on a 60, 60 degree slope. She was trying to commit suicide. She'd, we found out later that she'd had about 12 months before this, her husband and her were on a property and he was cutting timber and the uh, chainsaw came up and copped her across the face. So she was very badly disfigured and she went through all that uh, trauma. So she decided she was going to commit suicide and she leapt off the lookout, but unfortunately she was still alive. But we had to get her out there in a hurry. That was in a jet ranger, one of the police helicopters, and there was typical adverse winds and yeah. on the edge of a cliff. And there was a, a dead tree directly above where we were, which was in fear of coming down through us, so we had to kind of manoeuvre. The guy, Gary Thornton, 
who was the um, uh, rescue squad guy, he went he went down on the on the wire, and we couldn't get him up close enough to the because of the dead tree to the where the lady was. And next minute he's off wire, and uh, he'd got an, on an overhanging tree, which he probably had six hundred six or seven hundred feet straight down. If he hadn't have got on on that, he, if he had missed that, he would have been. So he crawled in on the tree and then went up to her and then so we came and dropped the Stokes litter down a bit further away. So he went down and got that working on the steep slope and then he, he went up and got her into it. And then we came back and picked her up and took her away and then came and picked him up. But Gary Thornton was a very, very experienced rescue squad guy. The same system as in the army. It's got to be witnessed by somebody in authority. In this case, it was witnessed by a police inspector on the ground he saw what happened and it was the one chance they had of well not the one chance it yeah. was a chance to reward Gary Thornton for yeah. all the things yeah. he'd done up until that stage yeah, which hadn't been no yeah. as I said before it's a lot of a lot of the stuff that you do and I've been in more far more dangerous situations than that but mm. nobody ever saw it because it was in yeah. the middle of the night and off the yeah. edge of a cliff somewhere yeah, yeah. And rightly so, the, he he did an absolutely superb job, yeah. and he got the uh, George Medal, which is the, yeah. the second highest award you can get, civilian award for bravery. So we got ours, our bravery awards as a kind of a consolation prize. It was a team effort, yeah. but we didn't we didn't expect anything. We wrote up our witness reports to get Garrier because we realised just what, what was involved. Yeah. And that was that was true bravery. That. And you often wonder how many other people that have done similar things, unseen, unheard, oh, yeah. that have just passed into history and no one will ever know. Oh, that, that happens a lot in the police helicopters and the ambulance helicopter, care flight, all that sort of thing. Yeah. They, they, any of these guys that are listening to these podcasts would relate to... But you get that personal satisfaction. You don't really need the accolades. It's all in your, in your yeah. mind, in your heart. You know, you've done it. You don't need to prove it to anybody else. And I think that in itself is probably the spirit of Anzac and the spirit of flight is that unassuming, unrecognised, not wanting the accolades and the kudos from a whole bunch of different people. It's That probably is the true spirit of service and of flight and of Anzac. Especially when you come back and you say, well, that was a stupid thing to do. I won't do that again. <laughs> I nearly killed myself there. Yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Well, like you said, I think it's also a fine line between bravery and stupidity as well. And often if you get away with it, you get a medal. If you don't, you get taken to court. So <laughs> <laughs> Aircraft have got to be serviceable enough for you to fly and you've got to be yeah. gutsy enough to do what's got to be done. You're still standing on the shoulders of what's been done, but if it's a pioneering type thing, it's something new, then you have to take up that innovative kind of Frank McNamara spirit. I guess we hope you know, our current generation of Anzacs are able to do if they're faced with similar circumstances. And you've got to, aviation to trust throughout the whole of the, of the chain. You've got your, uh, you know, your authorising officer is, is letting you go and do something. You've got all that training behind you, so you, you go with confidence that you can physically do something. And you've got your maintenance teams and your people are providing the parts into that maintenance system. There's a certain amount of trust that everything is, is going to uh, work. So there's no point worrying about it. You just go out there and do it. How about you, Luke? Any final 
thoughts? Yeah, I think this year is probably the first year that I've had an even greater appreciation for, especially the aviators that were in mm. all of the wars. Like learning, I, I just couldn't think of strapping myself into a warbird and going off to fight 20 hours in. It's just absolutely crazy. And yeah, so that's a pretty cool little bit of insight that I get to have this year as I go through my training to um, be able to look at those guys. And when I'm looking at their documentaries and stuff on YouTube, they're all the Mustang mm. pilot. Another snippet that came up with that story too is he probably had what as you said probably roughly 20 hours when he was when mm. he did that if that yeah and uh, he's already thrown it flown at least three different aircraft mm. types mm. probably without a conversion mm-hmm. he would have mm-hmm. just been strapped himself in a new aircraft and learned as right. he went along yeah nowadays it never happened to, these days no nowadays you have to have a complete conversion course or transition course onto the different aircraft types but yeah you're right they probably just strapped themselves into that other aircraft without probably any hours on it and thankfully the stick and rudder all did the same kind of yeah. thing the instruments might have been or what little there were of the instruments were probably in slightly different places but they were able to make it work and i think that again is just that spirit of innovation that spirit of can do, can do yeah. Yeah. it is a good thing it can sometimes become a bad thing so we'll talk about in the future about how getting the job done can sometimes cause other issues but these guys again we just want to respect them salute them and uh, they're long gone now they're a sort of missing fourth generation and uh, with that we might finish off today's podcast so thanks guys cancel silage is the last radio call a pilot makes when a flight has landed safely the SAR in silage is an acronym for search and rescue when a pilot radios cancel SARWatch, they let air traffic services know they have landed safely and the search and rescue watch can be cancelled. If the flight has been flown safely and professionally, then the cancel SARWatch call must surely epitomise the spirit of aviation because it will realistically represent the totality of a pilot's attitude, training, experience and wisdom in bringing the aircraft back home safely. Cancel SARWatch, the call we hope every pilot makes, every flight, in the name of our podcast. Again. Thanks for listening and don't forget to comment and rate us on iTunes and to visit us at www.cancelsarwatch.com where you'll find additional content to help you cancel Sarwatch. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hit your Cancel Sarwatch bookmark in about two weeks for our next episode.